Again, my name is Ron Cool. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'd like to welcome all of you here as well this morning. We're going to be continuing our, our uh, sermon series on the book of Genesis, those opening chapters of the entire Bible that we're calling Beginnings. And at this point, we're up to our, our third sermon on Genesis chapter 3, okay? Uh, we've done two already, and we're going to finish out uh, Genesis chapter 3 this morning, and then uh, Daniel's going to pick up Genesis 4 next week. But again, just to set the stage for where we are with this, um, Genesis 1 and 2, we said, you know, is, is the story of creation. It's the story of what God did when he created the world, and, and it's very clear that when God created everything, it was all good. It was very good. Seven times we're told, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Everything was, was just the way it was supposed to be. And, and there was only one prohibition. There was only one thing that Adam and Eve couldn't do. They couldn't eat from the tree of the garden, or the tree of uh, the knowledge of uh, good and evil. And so that was the one thing that they couldn't do. And so last week we started to go into chapter 3, where we see them falling into sin. Oh, just a minute here, I went too far. We changed the program a little bit. You see, now Kevin has a clock back there for me. So we'll see if it does any good. Probably not. Um, Genesis 3. So the first part of Genesis 3, 1 through 7, um, we talked about how what happens is the serpent comes along. The serpent comes along and he, and he deceives Adam and Eve. And, and he convinces them that, that, that they should rebel against God, that they should put themselves in God's place, that they should, they should try to just decide for themselves what's good and what's bad. And we, we talked about that as sort of being an, a temptation to push a vase off the shelf, right? And so, and so they did that and, and they refused to obey God. And then last week we talked about how in, in verses 8 through 20, we, uh, we broke a vase and, and we said really what primarily happens in 8 through 20 is that God describes what's happening. God describes what happened because of sin, how the world was broken. You see, in that act, in our rebellion against God, and somehow we were all there with Adam and Eve, everything got twisted. Our relationship with God was changed. Our relationship with each other was changed. The world was changed. It doesn't work right anymore. We don't work right anymore. And so we have this situation now ever since then where we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world because of our own rebellion. Whoops, we lost everything all together on here. All right, I don't know. Kevin, are we okay? Or Okay, all right, so we live in a broken world. Um, and, and, and then the question is, what happens next? Like I say, primarily in those 8 through 20, God is describing what's happening. And, and what I want to suggest happens in the next verses, 3, 21 to 24, is, is that God now acts. God now goes to work. And, and what's wonderful for me to notice is that God goes to work full of grace and full of love. And each of the things we see God doing here ultimately points us to Christ. Genesis 3, starting at verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim, angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So far, the reading of God's word. I want you to kind of imagine the scene here, okay? Because I, I, I think as we do this and as we take some time, this is, this is really some powerful stuff where we see the presence of Jesus Christ already here in Genesis chapter 3. But imagine the scene, okay? You're in the Garden of Eden. It's the most beautiful place on earth, but already it's starting to show signs of decay because Adam and Eve have rebelled, because we in them have rebelled. It's starting to show signs of decay. And God is there, and the serpent is there, and Eve is there, and Adam is there. 
And God gets done just describing to them, saying, this is what's going to happen now. This is what's happened. This is what's broken. He describes all of this broken stuff. To the serpent, this is what's going to happen to you. And to Eve, this is what's going to happen to you. And to Adam, this is what's going to happen to you. And to the creation, it's not going to produce the way it was supposed to. God gets done with all of that. And like I say, it's primarily descriptive. And, and now the question comes, what does God do next? How does God himself respond? Like I say, this has been what was just kind of built into the thing, and God says that's now what's going to happen. But now how is God going to respond? What is God going to do? One of the reasons I think it's interesting to think about that is, is God has every right just to pull back and, and to say to Adam and Eve, you've made your bed, now lie in it. You've chosen your battle, now just stay there. You, 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 you've put yourself in this situation. God has every right to pull back. God has every right to snap his fingers and say, I'm starting from scratch. But what we see God doing in these next verses is something very different than that. Because what God does is he begins to just pick up the pieces. And, and, and God starts putting things back together again. God starts creating grace that will, laying the groundwork for grace that will make all things new, all right? And what I want to suggest is there are three things. Three things that maybe you've heard before, but that we really don't really grasp until we slow down and think about them. Three things that God does, and each one is a gift of his grace. The first thing God does is, is God gives them clothes. He gives them garments of skin. Genesis three twenty one. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them, okay? He clothed them. What's the big deal? Why does that matter, okay? Let me kind of, again, set, set the scene for you of why this is significant and why this is important because, again, this explains a lot of what drives us in this world. If you want to understand what drives you, pay attention to what goes on here. First thing is we got to understand, again, before there was sin in the world, in Genesis 2.25, we're told that Adam and Eve were there and they, had, they, were, they were naked and unashamed. They had no secrets, Right? They, they were vulnerable. Everybody, they knew each other fully. They never covered anything up. It wasn't so much the physical nakedness that they were, it was, it was the emotional. It was the spiritual. It was the, it was the ability to just share. And they were completely known. That's how God created us to be, to live in those kind of relationships. But then because of sin, as soon as they sin, what happens is, is the Bible says in Genesis 3, 7 that their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked so they sewed fig leaves. Here's it, here it is in the text. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made covering for themselves. Okay? They sewed fig leaves. And I want to stop and think about that for a little bit. Because I am convinced that we have been sew, fo, sewing fig leaves ever since that time. Ever since Genesis 3, verse 7, you and I have been sewing fig leaves. And if we understand what we do when we do that and why we do that, we're going to understand a lot of our behavior. Think about this with me. You see, what happens in, in a broken world, what happens in a broken world is this. Knowledge, knowledge of another person and somebody knowing us becomes now the power to control others. Okay, when God created us, knowledge was the ability to help each other. Knowledge was the ability to support each other. Knowledge was the ability to be there for each other. But now for you and I, I don't want you to know me. Because if you know too much about me, you have power over me, right? If you know what I'm thinking, you have power over me. If you know my secrets, you have power over me. If you know what I'm embarrassed about, you have power over me. If you know my sins, you have power over me. And so now we've been just sowing fig leaves, right? Knowledge is power. Think about this. In, in a number of different ways we see this, right? Imagine you keep a diary. I don't know if you do. I don't. I never have. But imagine that you honestly kept a completely honest diary with every thought, every word, 
every deed. Included was a five-minute video of you at your worst every single day. And let's just throw in a selfie of you just in your underwear. How hard are you going to try to hide that? You know, I, I don't do this a lot. I've journaled on occasion. I can give you none of them because I have shredded them. I've shredded them because I don't want anybody to read them. I don't want you to know what I think all the time. I don't want you to know. And sometimes it's good to write that down. So I write it down and then I shred it. I shred it because I don't want people to know too much about me. I don't want that. And, and, and I cover up with that. Think about how we try to control facial expressions, right? Because we don't want people to know if we're upset. We don't want people to know if we're scared. Why do we get ashamed when we blush? Because we've shown too much of ourselves, right? You know that I've got a secret. You know that something you said made me nervous, and so I blushed. And why do I not like that? I, I, I don't like it because it reveals too much, because knowledge is power, and now you know something about me. Now you know something about me. This gets less true as we get older, this next one, but, but what do we do when we fall down? We look around. See, now as I'm older, I'd look around for somebody to help me get back up. But, you know, when you're younger, <laughs> when you're younger, why do you look around? Because you want to see if anybody saw you. Because you want to see if anybody knows that you tripped. If anybody knows that you were a fool. If anybody knows, you don't want anybody to know that because knowledge is power. There's a movie out a number of years ago, uh, 17, I think, years ago. I never saw it. But it was a horror movie. And the title of the movie, the title of the movie captured horror. It was this. I know what you did last summer. I know what you did last summer. If you want to mess with somebody, don't do this because it's really mean. But just write them a note anonymously. Put it in their locker at school and say, I know what you did last week. And they're going to be like, what? How do you know? What did I? And, and they're going to, right? I mean, can you imagine just getting somebody saying, an anonymous call saying, I know what you did last summer. I know what you did in December. I know. I know. And we're going to be like, I hope you don't know. You can't know because if somebody knows that much about us, we are in trouble. Knowledge is power over us. Some of you remember the stories about the secret files of, of J. Edgar Hoover, who was the first director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, right, the FBI. The word was that Hoover had special files on every president, senator, congressperson, uh, famous people in Hollywood, all of these things. Hoover was just a, a master at getting this information, and they said nobody could fire him. Because if anybody tried to fire him, he would pull out their file and he would share their secrets. William Sullivan was third in command in the FBI, and this is the way he talks about it. He says, the moment Hoover would get something on a senator, he'd send one of the errand boys up and advise that senator, uh, advise the senator that we're in the course of an investigation and we just happened by chance to come uh, come up with this data on your daughter. Maybe she's drinking. Maybe she had an abortion. We just uh, came up with this debt on your daughter, but we wanted you to know this. We realized you'd want to know it. What does that tell the senator? From that time on, the senator's right in Hoover's pocket, right? I mean, knowledge is power to control others. That's what drives a lot of what we do. Because I want to suggest that a lot of my life and a lot of your life is spent sowing fig, tree, fig leaves, trying to cover up, trying to control the information, trying to control what you think of me. And, and I think so much of what we do, think about it. Let me just give you some examples that kind of run across the board in different places. Facebook profiles. It's a fig leaf. 
Because I get to tell you what I want you to know about me. I get to tell you how I want you to see me. And I get to just tell you. And so think about how much time you put into that profile, right? I mean, I want to sound witty, but down to earth. I, I want to be well-read and thoughtful, but, but also just normal. I want to have that, you know, and, 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 and so we spend all this time creating a profile, creating an image, creating something so that people can't really see who we are. We are so desperately insecure. Biblically, we are so desperately insecure, even the best among us. We are so aware of our sinfulness that we sow fig trees, fig leaves rather, to try to cover up everything that's there. Not everybody who does this, but, but sometimes for people driving cool cars. Wanted to do it with a K, but, um, you know, but driving, driving cars. Why? Because that's just the kind of guy I am. That's how I roll right? That's who I am. And sometimes this car that I drive is really nothing more than a fig leaf trying to cover up my inadequacies. That's who I am. That's how I do this. We drive. How much time do we spend working out? None. But for those of you who do, how much of it is because you want people to think you got your life together? How much time do we spend making sure we look good when we go out? Because you can't let anybody see your real face. You can't let anybody see what's really there because if they know what you really look like, then they have power over you. I ran into somebody yesterday at the store. She said, oh, I can't believe I see you here. I said, why? Well, I didn't take a shower this morning. I just threw this hat on and I can't. And I'm thinking, seriously? I know things a lot worse than that about you. You think that's a big deal? Don't you remember what you told me that one time? I mean, but, but we work out. We try. Why? Because we want to cover up. We take on titles. CEO, president, lead pastor, right? Because I'm somebody. Because I'm in charge. And I want you to think that's about me. I'm, I'm trying to control the flow of information. I'm, I'm, you know, some of us have news clippings from 30 years ago when we were in high school and we scored 18 points in the basketball game. Because, man, we were, I never did that. If I did, I would have the clipping. But, you know, I mean, I have news clippings with me on the bench because that's where I spent most of my time. Uh, But, you know, right, some of us have these walls of fame. So when people walk into our house, we can say, that's who I am. That's who I am. I, 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 I once scored 18 points in a basketball game. On the other side of things, we blame others. my dad's fault it's this teacher's fault it's this coach's fault it's somebody else's fault it's not me that did this and so blaming becomes a fig leaf you know all these things think about how much of your life is spent sowing fig leaves i mean think about it honestly how much of your day is spent trying to control the information people have on you, trying to create an image, trying to to control how people think about you. We are, some of us, so driven that the majority of our lives is spent sowing fig leaves. Think about it. You know some people you can obviously think about, but I think we all do it to a degree. We are all trying to protect and deal with that deep sense of inadequacy, that deep sense of guilt, that deep sense of shame. And so what we do is we sew together fig leaves and we try to cover it up. But as Tim Keller says, there's one problem, fig leaves don't work. Keller says, you know what, you got to understand, I don't know how he knows this, but I trust him. 
fig leaves, he says, they don't cover real well. They rip easily, and there is a terrible draft. Friends, our cover-ups don't work. All of our fig leaves don't work. We get exposed. People know who we really are. People see beyond the cover-up. People see beyond the makeup. People see beyond the, the abs. People see beyond the car. People realize who we are. People know our fig leaves never work. So we just start sowing more, and we just start trying to get bigger fig leaves. We just try to do more of that. We try to cover up more and more. And if we understand that, if we understand how much of our lives is driven by, driven by fig leaves and sowing fig leaves, then we can see what amazing grace it is that God makes Adam and Eve coverings. You see, we can't cover ourselves. We can't cover ourselves. You can't do it. I don't care how much you try. Your fig leaves are not going to be good enough. You may fool me for a while, but I know who you're, what you're really like. I know what you did this morning. I know what you thought because you're like me. And it's probably not all that different. And all of our fig leaves ultimately get taken off and ripped apart and we get exposed. But God comes to Adam and Eve and says, you need something better. And he starts to cover them. The Lord, made God, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. What a gift. God covers our shame. We, we tend to want to expose others. God says, no. I will come and I will clothe you, and I will cover you. And that image of God covering us becomes a central image throughout the entire Bible. Psalm 32, verse 1, David says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And David's not talking about fig leaves. David's talking about God's grace. He's talking about God's grace. It's the only thing that can cover us up. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, Romans 3, verse 25, says, In Christ, this is what happens. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement or covering through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. What he's referring to there is the, is the Ark of the Covenant. You see that picture there. And, and, and the top of that, the top of that is called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is our atonement cover. Jesus is the one who covers our sins. Jesus is the one who, who washes them away. And, and that's an amazing thing that God makes us coverings. And, and, and it means something. And, and again, if we get this, we can start to live in so much freedom. We can stop sowing fig leaves, friends. We don't have to play those games. We don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to try to expose others. We don't have to try to blame others. Think of what freedom it would be. Think of what freedom it would be if I didn't have to worry that you might think that I'm not the best there is, that I'm not very good. What if I was so free in Christ, so aware of God's love for me, so knowing that God was going to cover me, that I could just admit my sins, that I could just admit my brokenness. That, that's why it is so freeing to not have to try to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. And when I am in Christ, and when I am aware of that, when I know that I am covered, then I can begin to experience some of that. And I don't have to pretend. Wouldn't it be great? In Christ, that's what we have. In Christ, that's what we have. I don't have to try to expose anybody else. You see, in a broken world, I can feel better about my fig leaves if I, if I rip yours apart. But if the blood of Jesus covers me, then I don't have to try to expose you. I can just love you and care about you. 
It just revolutionizes how we see ourselves, how we see each other, how we see if we understand that in Christ, he's going to cover all of our sins. He's going to wash all those things away. So now in a broken world, you don't want to, I'm not talking about saying, well, let's all just tell all our deepest secrets to each other. No, we're still sinful enough that uh, we, we want to keep, you know, some, some coverings on. Don't get me wrong. But friends, we can begin to experience real community in Christ. I don't have to try to prove I've got it all together. I don't have to try to sow fig leaves to say I am somebody. In a sense, one of the ways Keller talks about this, and I think it's so helpful, one of the ways Keller talks about saying how we can know that if we believe in grace or not is when somebody says to us, so you're a Christian? He says if we say, of course I'm a Christian. Can't you tell from the way I act? I'm I'm a Christian. And we kind of get offended by that. So we don't understand grace. But if somebody comes to us and says, so you're a Christian, and we laugh and say, ain't it funny? Then we know grace. Because if we're Christians, we're honest. about saying, it ain't pretty underneath the blood of Jesus. But it's okay because he's covering me. And he washes those things away. And I don't have to play the games. I don't have to play the games. God made coverings for them unbelievable act of love all right god covers us with his love god second thing god sends them out of the garden again this might not seem like a really nice thing to do it's the best place in the world but god sends them out look at why he does this genesis three twenty two. and the lord god said the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil okay the fruit works all right the fruit of the tree works adam and eve understand their eyes are opened but it was too much for them and like i say it broke them it twisted them it it, it, it's just it messed everything up but it did work they learned some things and and then god says this the man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever so the lord god verse 23 banished him from the garden of eden to work the ground from which he had been taken all right so god sends them out here's what i think we need to understand god doesn't do this to punish them this is not an act of God of punishment. God sending them out of the garden is not to say, this is, how, how, this is what's got to happen now. I'm going to send you out because you've been naughty. You want to know why God sends them out of the garden? To save them. So that they couldn't eat from the tree of life. You see, here's the situation. Once Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are like this. They are like this. This is our state apart from Christ. We are broken. We are fallen apart. We are twisted. We are wrong, okay? And what God is saying is, if they eat from the tree of life now, if they're able to have access to it, they will stay forever in this state. They will stay forever in this state. And God loves us too much to let us stay like this. God loves you too much to let you stay broken. And so what God does is God sends them out of the garden. God says, you're going to have to leave here because if you stayed here, you would be like this forever. You know, sometimes people will say, wouldn't it be great if we could live forever? And I want to say, not in this world. You want to live forever in this world with pain and brokenness and, and, and attacking and cruelty and war and all of the junk? You want to live forever here? God wants more than that for us. It's a wonderful picture of this in, in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, the first book, The Magician's Nephew, which is the story of creation, Okay. It's the story of how God creates. And at the end of that, God sends the nephew, Diggory, to find the tree of life and to bring back one apple that he's going to plant in the Garden of Eden, okay? So Diggory goes, and the wicked witch follows Diggory. And Diggory takes an apple, and she takes one, and she eats. 
Then Diggory goes back and says to Aslan, who's a figure for Christ, says to Aslan, um, the white witch followed me, the wicked witch followed me, and, and she ate some. But that's not going to work for her, right? I mean, she's evil, so she won't get life forever, will she? That won't work for her. And then look at what Aslan says. I mean, this is what Genesis is talking about. He says, alas, said Aslan, shaking his head, it will. Things always work according to their nature. She has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a goddess. And then these words. But length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery, and already she begins to know it. Length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery. If we had eaten from the tree of life, we would have remained like this forever. All get what they want. They do not always like it. See, we need to be able to die so God can raise us from the dead. We need it to be booted out of the garden. What God is doing by moving, removing Adam and Eve from the garden, he's protecting them from themselves, and we need to be protected from ourselves. We have this tendency to want to say, yeah, but I, I can fix myself, God, so just let me live long enough. I can fix myself, so just... And God says, no, you can't. And, and learning to die becomes the central theme in, in many ways of the New Testament. It's there in the Old, but it's new, central in the New Testament. Look at what Jesus says in John 12, 23 and 24. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus is talking about his death and about how he, when he dies, he will bring us life. And he's going to call us to learn to die as well. Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Right? If we're in this state, if we lose this life, which if we're honest isn't much of a life, but if we will lose this life for Christ, he will raise us and he will restore us. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What good would it be to live forever in a broken world, to have the tree of life in the midst of death? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their souls? We need to be able to die so God can raise us from the dead. And here I want you to think about this question. What am I reaching for? Ask yourself honestly. What are you reaching for? Life in this world or life from God? Because this world still promises us, hey, try me and you'll find life. <laughs> try me and you'll find life. This is the good life. It, and, and somehow we, you know, there's enough power someplace. There's enough prestige. There's enough possession. There's a big enough house, a big enough car, a fast enough this or whatever. That's somewhere out there. And I tell you this, if you are seeking from the tree of life of this world, you will be miserable. The only way to find life is to die to Jesus. And he raises us from the dead. So God sends them out of the, the garden so they can die. And that's good news. That's good news. So God clothes them. He sends them out of the garden. And the third thing is God places angels and a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden. All right? Genesis 3, 23 and 24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. All right? So he sends them out. They're now clothed. They're protected. They're covered. He sends them out. They now don't have access to the tree of life so that they can die. And then he puts angels 
and a flaming sword. Now, you can go back a couple of months and read what we talked about with the angels there. So I really don't want to talk about that again. What I want to talk about is the flaming sword. The flaming sword. Why was it put there? What does it represent? At this most basic level, it's there to keep Adam and Eve out, right? It's there so Adam and Eve can't get back in. But I want to suggest that it also becomes an image of what it takes to get back in. Okay, follow me on this. You see, a sword in the Bible, especially a sword of God, is always judgment and justice. A debt must be paid, all right? In Ezekiel 21, it talks about God sending a sword, and this is actually a sword called Babylon confronting and destroying his people. Look at what it says. Son of man, that's Ezekiel, prophesy and say, this is what the Lord says. A sword, a sword, sharpened and polished, sharpened for the slaughter, polished to flash like lightning, like lightning right? a flaming sword. God's flaming sword in this case is Babylon coming to make his people pay, to cut them off. The sword is always judgment and and, and justice, and it's paying a debt. And so what God is saying by putting this sword here is that the only way for us to get back in is to pay for sin. The only way for us to get back in is to go under the sword. The only way for us to get back to the Garden of Eden is for the sword to fall on us. And I hope you already got it, but it points us to Jesus. Because he goes under the sword for us. Look at Hebrews 9. He, Jesus, did not enter, that's the most holy place, by means of the blood of goats and calves. But he entered the most holy place. And again, we talked about how the most holy place is like the Garden of Eden. It's the place of the presence of God. But he entered the most holy place once for all. How? By his own blood. He went under the sword. He shed his blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus is the only way for us to get back to the garden. And Hebrews 10 says that to us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. That sword there. It shows us the way to get back in. But it also shows us and it teaches us that act of grace that says we can't pay that price ourselves. We cannot get back into God's presence ourselves because the cost is death and it's only Jesus Christ who can pay that cost for us. And what an amazing thing that he does. So let me try to just wrap this up. How does God respond? He he gives them clothes, garments of skin. He covers us with his love. He sends them out of the garden protects us from ourselves and he places an angel and a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden he pays the price so we can get back in god sends us out but already he starts to restore things and create the way for us to come back home god always takes the first step but we need to ask close by asking this question how will we respond to god's grace what do we do with this god I just want to tell you, friends, there is no way that you can sew enough fig leaves together. There's no way you can get back into the garden on your own. There is no way that you can find life in this world, friends. It's Jesus, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. And we see that already in Genesis 3. He is our only hope. And my hope and prayer is that all of us, once again today, will simply say, Lord, I give my life to you and I receive your grace. Let's pray together. Father, it's amazing. 
we read these words, but we don't really see what you're doing. So remind us this morning of your amazing grace and of your amazing love for us. Father, forgive us for all the fig leaves we've been sowing together, trying to cover up, thinking we could find life in this world, thinking we could handle our own failures. And thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus who died so we could live, who went outside so we could come back inside, and whose blood covers all of our sins. Teach us to love him and to be like him. In his name we pray, amen. Would you please stand to receive God's parting word of blessing. So again, there are going to be some folks from Hillside to the prayer room, that side of the auditorium. If you'd like to meet with somebody or pray with somebody, they'd be happy to do that. People of God, as we go from this place, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will go with each and every one of us. And may we know that the blood of Jesus covers all our sins. Go in God's grace. Amen.